Hey everybody, welcome back to The Node. Happy New Year. Today I have a podcast with a friend of mine, Tim Minutza. Tim is an outdoor educator. He's very passionate about his career. He is also, hmm, let's say, I, I might say an explorer. I would say Tim is an explorer. He's a personality. He's a really good friend. The interview I have for you today is a conversation that Tim and I had last August, actually, and I've just been hiding this episode away from you until I got around to editing it. In this podcast, we talk about outdoor education, what that is, and kind of Tim's philosophy behind that. Then we jump into Tim's trek across the Silk Road, which for those of you who don't know, the Silk Road is a trade route across Eastern Asia all the way into Europe, it's been around since, hmm, I don't know, a very, very long time ago. So Tim and a couple of his friends trekked the majority of the Silk Road on foot. And the last part of the podcast is us getting into detail about his trek across the Silk Road. Unlike past podcasts, this one is formatted in two parts, only because of the maximum size a podcast can be that I can upload to my podcast distributing website. Anyway, um, part one is just the first part of the interview. Part two is the second part of the interview. It's the same interview, um, and part two will pick up right where we leave off here in part one. I'll keep this intro brief, and I just mention again, if you want to support the podcast, there's a tip jar at the bottom of the show notes. If you just open up the show notes, which is where I kind of described the episode and go down to the bottom, there's a link you can click and it takes you to a portal where you can give me money it's actually pretty nifty you can send it straight from your bank account into mine uh so that's there if you are feeling so generous um another way you can support the podcast is sharing episodes you like on social media recommending it to friends or family that you think might be interested simply listening is also an act of support so thanks for listening and please enjoy this interview with Tim Minutza. Okay, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. I think that um, childhood seems like a pretty natural way to start this. Um, and so I wanted to approach that from the lens of your interest in outdoor education. So if you maybe want to do like a brief introduction of yourself and then tell us like when you started becoming interested in the outdoors and yeah, when you started pursuing outdoor education specifically. Yeah. Um, so, um, Tim. Uh, I spell my name with a silent B, like Climber Lim. Um, I uh, grew up in the suburbs of Minnesota, um, and I would consider Ely home if uh, I were to have one. I'm just not around very often. I got into outdoor education unknowingly when I was like 14 years old. Mm -hmm. 14 or 15, I was like a counselor in training for the YMCA camp, and the group I was working with had one really unruly girl who just like swore and uh, flicked people off and cursed. And they just put me in charge of keeping her <laughs> in line and uh, making sure she had fun. 
And so like I started in wilderness therapy then I would say unknowingly. And Mm -hmm. then I worked at a summer camp and I taught the only mandatory thing there, which was uh, swimming. If you couldn't pass the swim test, you had to take swimming class. And so I taught the one thing people didn't want to do super early in the morning in the cold water, which uh, feels very much in line with outdoor education and wilderness therapy then. And then I uh, went to college for chemical engineering my freshman year, had a freshman life crisis, mm-hmm. and then found out about outdoor education as a field okay. and went to study outdoor leadership at Vermilion Community College in Minnesota. Okay, cool. Wow. Graduated with my associates from there and then went on to Western State Colorado University for my bachelor's Okay, uh, and, and just continued ever since. What's your bachelor's in? Outdoor ed and anthropology. Oh, cool. So, Is it a double major? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you faced resistance on day one then? Yeah. Yep. And I uh, loved it. So, uh, yeah, wilderness therapy was a natural fit. Outdoor ed's been a natural fit. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely my career, which is fun. That's really cool. Um, So that's kind of broken down into two pieces. There's the outdoor piece, and then there's the education piece. What what draws you to the outdoors? Uh, trail life is my favorite life, and, like, I prefer to live outside mm-hmm. in general. Uh, so that that's the outdoor part right there. And Mm -hmm. then I really like the education that is the main component of outdoor ed is usually life skills Mm -hmm. and people skills. And it feels super valuable teaching these skills to humans. So, yeah. Do you think that outdoors gets put into education like wilderness therapy, um, outdoor recreation slash teaching? Do you think that's there because people like it? Or do you think there's like, more fundamental element to the outdoor portion of outdoor education? Uh, I think it's a fundamental thing. I think that a lot of times we use it because people don't like it. Mm. Um, And then that is the educational piece of it is how much it can suck and how much you have to get through it, even if it's raining the entire time you're out there Mm -hmm. or the bugs are bad. And I think it's like a working through it rather than for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Like a, to steal Kurt Hahn's philosophy right there. Okay. Yeah, he always said that he is the guy who started Outward Bound and he taught not for the sea, but through the sea. Okay. So that like you go out into these wilderness places, not to prepare to be out in the wildernesses, but because that they teach inherent lessons while you're out there. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you feel like growing up, you had to go through the same, I don't know, struggle with the outdoors or was it? easier for you to take on well i hated going for walks with my parents when i was a child and Mm -hmm. i hated hiking um but i uh was car camping growing up and i think i enjoyed it the whole time through and i had gone into rotc my freshman year of college and i think that in my mind really what i wanted was to like wander across foreign lands and just like be in the middle of nowhere and uh, I thought the military was the only way I could do that and then as mm-hmm. I've grown older I've learned that I can just do that oh, um, you can. yeah <laughs> wow and uh yeah so I think that I didn't really have those struggles with it more than just being like a petulant child when I was yeah. growing up yeah and for I guess the education component you're kind of inducing that experience at a later age in a way Usually with people who are less experienced or more resistant to it or who people who are super stoked on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're already going to learn it no matter what on their own. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and you said that a lot of the outdoor education is teaching like a social component, um, like yeah, teaching people to be able to work in group dynamics. So how does that work in the outdoors versus being in a inherently social environment like a city? Yeah, I think like uh, the key component is the like the expeditionary mentality towards a lot of it where you like need each other to manage to make things go smoothly like mm-hmm. not necessarily like these kids don't need to work together to survive because mm-hmm. we're going to keep them alive mm-hmm. but to make it enjoyable and run smoothly uh all members of an expedition have to work together which is right. uh, a challenge for many people who have never worked together well yeah um, and then through that struggle you teach how to better work together and so that's the component of it that comes from the outdoors is that like expeditionary style that just necessitates it. Right. Like you have to work together to make it smooth. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And like in a city, you can basically go to a place to get the thing that you need, like from other people that have already produced it. Yeah. Whereas in the wilderness or like in an outdoor environment or just any environment where you're like reliant on the team of people that you're with, you really have to, you're kind of forced to make those social relationships work in one way or another so that you can function as a group. I also think that outdoor ed happens in cities as well and that it's Mm. more of a philosophical approach of experiential education that like those are so inherently intertwined. Like New York Outward Bound does urban expeditions Mm -hmm. where they're in the city the whole time and the group is still reliant on each other because it's that expeditionary model. So I've heard some people believe that outward bound can happen under a kitchen table. And I've heard other people believe that that is uh, bullshit. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of it is debatable. And in my mind, it's more of a frame of reference of like how you're getting people to work through things and work together that like that component can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you worked at Outber- outward bound for how long? Uh, three summers, three summers in Minnesota, Minnesota outward bound. Fobs. 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 Voyager outward bound school. Okay. Can you tell us about the process that um, like somebody joining an Outward Bound Expedition would go through? Uh, yeah, just lay that out because I think it provides a lot of context for what we're talking about right yeah. now. So a student would show up and a student could be anywhere from like 12 to an adult of any age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you show up at the airport, you get picked up. You get thrown into, at Minnesota Outward Bound, we mainly go in the boundary waters. So there's a group size limit of uh, nine, which means seven students and two instructors. And uh, you are just thrown together with these people. And the first couple days of the course, uh, the staff, the instructors are basically uh, teaching you everything and doing everything with you and showing you everything. And so... The Outward Bound courses are generally broken up into three sections, and that part's called training, where you just get trained on everything. And then there's the main section where, like, the Outward Bound instructors are, like, slowly stepping away, and you're taking on more responsibility. And then there's final, which is the third section, and uh, hypothetically, the Outward Bound instructors are totally uninvolved, and you, as your group, have learned all of the skills necessary to function entirely on your own, independently, out there, on expedition, and the group runs it. So the student goes from this point of knowing nothing or nearly nothing or being with a group members who don't know anything about what they're doing out there uh, to slowly acquiring those skills uh, to do everything on their own because it's an expeditionary school. And then by the end, like running their own expedition. Okay. And so 
like the things that they would learn in that training phase would be dependent on the expedition that they're, they're going to be out on. Yeah. I would say like they learn uh, how to work as a group by communication skills. They learn structure and how like the technical skills, but uh, the cool part of Outward Bound as an instructor or as an educator, at least from my experience at Vobs, is that you are basically given your students, your entry point, your exit day, uh, and your co-instructor. And then you're just like, go educate. Make it work. Yeah. So you can teach whatever you want to teach. You write your own curriculum and like, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's total autonomy and freedom in the work. And that's uh, uh, exceptional for what I've seen in the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You You have like an exit day but do you have an exit point are you trying necessarily to get to a place with your expedition you choose your exit point okay uh within reason Mm -hmm. uh, because the boundary waters is like a very non uh like easily definable shape Mm -hmm. and so uh you can come out all over the place and you can do whatever type of route you want uh, as long as someone can pick you up at the end okay so you led your expeditions in the boundary waters wilderness that was uh, the majority of the work I've done for Outward Bound, and the majority of the work Bob's does is in the Boundary Waters. I also was a sea kayak instructor, and we do the north shore of Lake Superior, oh, wow. um, which is a really cool area. And then I also did backpacking on the SHT, which I personally believe is one of the worst hiking trails in America. What is the SHT? Uh, the Superior Hiking Trail. It's oh. just like lots of ups and downs, which is cool because it follows ridgelines and you get cool views, but it's just like there's not a lot of water. It's when there is water, it's just muddy everywhere. Sometimes you're just like walking through really large, swampy, aldery areas. Ooh. Yeah. So the northern shore of Lake Superior, is that Canada? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Does the boundary waters extend into Canada? No. At the border, it becomes the Quetico Provincial Park. So it's another, it's a, it's whatever Canada's system of park is for that. Okay. Uh, so it's a state park in Canada. Can Provincial you access? Park. Can yep. you just cross the border if you're in the U.S.? Yeah. you Like, sometimes you cross the borders or just to portage through because the portage is on the Canadian side. Whoa. Is that legal? Uh, if you need to. Okay. Yeah. You're not supposed to just, like, hang out in Canada or be there if you don't need to be. But if you need to be, like, it's the wilderness, right? So if a sudden storm came up and you, like, yeah, had to seek shelter on the Canadian side, no one's going to get upset at you over it. Yeah. I wonder, are there laws... Do you know of any wilderness laws that prevent certain sorts of infrastructure, such as like camera systems? I mean, I don't suppose it's legal to put a game camera out there. There's lots of rumors about how they patrol it, whether with drones. Or we know there's rangers out there because mm-hmm. you see them. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's rumors and speculation. Yeah. Where I grew up was on the Canadian border and yeah. um, there's definitely cameras out there. Yeah. Yeah. There's, but you could walk across if you wanted to. Yeah. we You paddle across this one all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just like go along it. We always joke with the students that the line on the map uh, that's dotted is like under the lakes. And you can just see it under there. <laughs> Try to let them know that that's not true eventually if they fall for it. <laughs> yeah. So where are you, most of your students coming from that go out on these expeditions? Uh, most are from the U.S. who go to Outward Bound. There's usually some international students. And there's a... Summer Search is a scholarship program for inner city kids who are like crushing it okay, in a lot of ways, but don't have money. And they, uh, oh, nice. They bring a lot of students to our outward bound. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think scholarship programs are so important for 
a lot of people that don't necessarily get out or yeah it's hard to learn the skills to be able to do outdoor stuff so it's definitely important to either have access to someone who knows how to do it or be able to afford it so i think the scholarship programs are really key it's cool that they do that yeah accessibility is definitely one of the struggles in outdoor ed that hasn't been figured out yet is accessibility and like getting diversity through that because uh most cultures have some outdoor component like we're humans right so we all have the outdoors in our you know history and Mm -hmm. uh yet the industry is still very much like a stereotypical you know white privileged people and it doesn't need to stay that way yeah it's very recreation based yep yeah that's an interesting to think about um like what allows for the access to the outdoors based on like what cultural component you have and then if that's been erased like a lot of yeah i i guess i'm not going to make any huge claims here but (laughs) yeah if that's been compromised you definitely um you might need to start from scratch or somewhere again to rebuild it if or yeah. find it again. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about of like, how do you... Sorry, this is probably my wife. That's okay. Yeah, I remember, for example, I think the reason that I got introduced to being in the outdoors was because... Well, A, because my parents took me car camping, like your parents. We went hiking. And then hunting culture is big in rural U.S. And so that's a big way to learn... Uh, some sort of autonomy in the outdoors because you can't just, I mean, you, when I transitioned from being like young teenager, like relying on parents and others for the resources to go do that stuff to being away from home, I definitely had to make it work for myself to even be able to do that. And it takes quite a bit to like get the equipment and then to like, train yourself to know where to go to like hunt an animal or I mean even just with hiking like where are you gonna go you have to like either get that information from somebody that knows it or somebody that doesn't and that's been a very continual journey um through a bunch of different people I would say my friend Cole Geshwind who was on this podcast um has helped me a lot learning different types of recreation he's very into like finding out how to do things. And he's like very good at sharing that with friends. And it, it, yeah, just that it's a really interesting thing that a lot of people end up finding like mentors through friends to be able to do this stuff. And it's all, it's like almost equally interesting that the, I mean, the outdoor education industry is kind of filling that niche in a way. Um, and it, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal because it's kind of been neglected for so long, I feel like. And now we're at the point where it's like coming back. Like obviously there's jobs in outdoor ed, but we're still looking at these problems. Like, yeah, we're still looking at problems of how, um, people from cultures that have been upset within the last few hundred years uh, can get out and do these things without necessarily having an abundance of local mentors. It just kind of also goes to speak to the uh, like industrialization of so much of our um, cultural and 
nor like traditionally a lot of these systems of knowledge have been passed down through family structures or communities and now it's really seems like it's being transferred transferred from communities to sort of an infrastructure or like uh industry in a way yeah i don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah totally um it's also super young overall and it's very varied around the world like how it gets done like american outdoor ed Mm -hmm. uh even um is going to be different than a lot of other places like my friends are on the front line of it in china right now and uh it's just developing now um but like the whole i would say um, outdoor ed really got its start and its foundation between dewey and kurt hahn and dewey was all about experiential ed and he was a philosopher okay it's so like he was really pushing that experiential style learning and han was uh like the educator side of it and he was well they're both educators but han mm-hmm. was uh more pragmatic i would say and he was building schools but in both realms like the it was uh outdoor ed and experiential ed like what they were building was a uh, just means to an ends of a better world in general. Like uh, Kurt Hahn was working for peace and Dewey was working to revitalize our education, like fundamentally shift our education system around the world and our philosophy around education around the world to yeah, educate better. Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me and it's like really hard to communicate is the like, why is the outdoors a place that, I mean, why do we think that this is something that we're, where we can achieve peace or like, it, it seems like we have really lofty goals for education once it implies the outdoors or the wilderness in some way. And I definitely personally can see the value of being outside, but I think it's very hard to communicate or verbalize why that is such an integral part of education in general. And like, I don't know why, why do you think that experiential or outdoor ed could lend itself to having such an influence on how the world is? I think, uh, personally for me, where it comes to is that, uh, experiential ed is usually done or often done in groups too with that group learning as with outdoor ed and ultimately what you're coming down to like a Kurt Hahn said above compassion above all else and I think that that is really where you're shooting for is you're getting humans to realize what it's like to be other humans and to be compassionate towards those humans while you're trying to work together Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where like if those ripples continue forward where the hopes lie in having that larger impact of yeah. just like teaching humans compassion. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like super needed at this moment where the world is uh, basically in turmoil because, well, maybe not just because, but I think a large factor of that is everybody um, putting, investing so much of themselves into the internet and allowing their like emotional well being to be dictated by uh, a large group of people that they do not know and that experience zero consequences from being absolutely nasty towards them. So, yeah, 
Yeah. We're in a weird point too, where like our technology has uh, way outpaced our philosophies. Mm-hmm. Like we just don't have a cultural philosophy on how the internet should be used or like what our values around it is. And it's just this wild west of like ethics, I would say online and yeah. values online that we, uh, we need to come to some sort of uh, social agreement, I would think on how these things should play a part in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many ways to take that too because it's like, I mean, we could talk about how it's changed, which could be productive in a manner, and then we could also talk about talk about how it's going to change. I mean, if we have you heard about Neuralink at all? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if we're experiencing um, Twitter comments on a like holistic level in our brain that might fundamentally change how we're interacting on the internet internet in a way that could make it so that we could have equally therapeutic experiences online versus being in uh, reality, which is really odd to think about. Yeah. But the topic of why the wilderness or why the outdoors, what about it creates such a special ingredient for education i think that if i'm not getting you wrong that answer that you're kind of coming at me with is in a way it teaches you reality at a more base level and whether that's a social group or like just the fact that you're in a high consequence environment i think that's really important especially i mean just like what we just talked about but also within cities and within places that are largely human dominated and like built off of our idea of what the world should be. I think a lot of people lose touch with what are the things that actually dictate how we're living. I mean, it's not really present on people's mind how close we actually are to like being wiped out by weather or any sort of natural phenomena. So Yeah, I think that the reality component seems very important. Yeah, and the consequences are so real and immediate, and the responsibilities are so real and immediate. Like, if you can't make a fire, you're going to have cold dinner. Mm -hmm. And if you don't put your raincoat on when it's starting to rain a little, and you're soaking wet and cold later, like, you can trace your action to the current consequences that you're in right there. And that's uh, usually a lot more removed uh, in people's typical lives. Yeah. uh, often uh way more removed in time as well so like the Mm. consequences for your action usually or often are way farther down the line temporally Mm -hmm. out in typical life and so that it's not as immediate that connection yeah and there's so much diffusion of responsibility as well because like (laughs) often there's so many times i think that people are upset at the weatherman because the weather was not predicted correctly yeah they're like ah damn weatherman i didn't bring an umbrella today that's ridiculous (laughs) yeah and there's no yeah there's uh you can try and blame other people or things out there but ultimately like you're the only one who can change your situation usually so that's a or you know unless someone's rescuing you but that's the job as the instructor is to just like you know create a safe place for suffering Right. While you learn what you need to do to not suffer. 
Yeah. 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 That's an interesting perspective. And I, I wonder going into like the educational component, do you think that these lessons that are taught out there stick with people or, I mean, cause we're talking about a place where you're going through suffering. A lot of these people, um, at least in your other job with elements wilderness, um, don't necessarily want to be in this educational process. So how deep do you think this education goes and how, how much do you think it sticks with somebody? Anecdotally, people cite it all the time in their lives as having been a turning point. I think it's like, it's really hard to tell, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's a, I think we are beginning to try and study all this stuff and collect data and see, but you know, how can you ever really know like how much and how long of an impact it had Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like someone just going through their things. But anecdotally you see, you can see large differences, especially with students out in wilderness who uh, go home and have such a different relationship with the world around them than they did when they got there. And so, yeah, it's hard to say but I like to think that it has a large impact. That's what keeps you doing it. So, Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like the aims of it. The uh, the ends uh, feel good, and the means also feel good. And what's the ends? Uh, trying to help people uh, create lives that they're happier with and feel more in control of, I would say, ultimately, yeah. just to like uh, help them get what they want out of life or get closer to it at least. Right. And actually know what they want versus yeah. Thinking they know what they want. Yeah. Provide them tools and time for reflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you, you've worked for outward bound in your college career. What would you say you took away from that as far as learning about education and how to educate in the outdoors? Uh, my community college experience was incredible and like, that's where I feel like I owe most of the credit to, mm-hmm. um, to begin with just like, a didn't realize it until afterwards, but basically we were being trained how to be an outward bound instructor, but it was just like, so direct of like, uh, these are skills you need and these are the tools you can have and like getting into the industry after there and just feeling way ahead of everyone else who was starting off at that point too. Yeah. Um, which felt really good. Uh, after there, I felt like I was paying for a certificate, to be yeah. honest. And uh, like a lot of the philosophy for my bachelor's was like, you need to go out there and work to get that experience. Um, which oh. like, yeah. It kind of defeats the purpose of having an education yeah, in that's, some ways. Yeah, that's how I felt. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, is what it is. That's why I'm drawn to... In the future, I would love to teach at a community college level for outdoor ed because I feel like that's where really good work is being done, and that's where I would like to try and contribute. What do you think makes that difference? Uh, community colleges are working on little resources with the goal of getting people hireable mm-hmm. immediately in a short time with as little as possible in between, whereas uh, I feel like our current system, the bachelor's degrees are more or less set up as a gateway. Like yeah. you need to have your bachelor's to be able to access a certain part of our world. And right. uh, 
So it's really just trying to get you through that gateway. Whereas like an associate's degree doesn't really get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. So what they need to get you is the skills you need to do your job really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting and kind of depressing distinction. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we can change things in the future. Yeah, that's true. So on a personal level, you have approached a career of outdoor education and you've done that through well, actually, I want to talk more about your outward bound expeditions first. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, how long? How long is an expedition outward bound? Varies. Um, there's like five day expeditions at Vobs up to uh, forty five day okay. expeditions. Uh, the longest they go unsupported, I believe, is twenty eight days uh, okay. out there with no resupply, nothing. Like you're out there, and because it's canoeing, that's mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can just touch on what Outward Bound is, too, on a larger scale. So yeah, like, let's do that. Uh, it's an expeditionary school model, um, and there's Outward Bound schools all around the world. There's like five main bases in America, but they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started uh, to fight the Nazis during World War II. Whoa. Uh, Kurt Hahn had a school in Germany called Salem, which was a combination of uh, Shalom and Salam. Uh, meaning peace in Arabic and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and like his, yeah, he was trying to create world peace or not world peace, but more peace, mm-hmm. uh, bring us all together in general um, and through education. And then he spoke out against Hitler and the Nazis and told everyone at Salem that they were either with Salem or they were with uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And so he got thrown in jail, um, but he was super influential and got uh, like sn- let out or snuck out to go to England where Mm -hmm. he started another school. Um, and like he had the students build the school. Like that was part of the program was like, you had to build it and, uh, royalty went there. So like, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh went to Gordonston was the name of the school. Uh, Prince Charles went to Gordonston. Um, and like one of Kurt Hans things was you put a Jewish kid and an Arab prince in a boat and they go get seasick together. Like you might've done more for world peace that day than many people will do in a lifetime. Wow. Um, yeah. And so that was what he was going for overall. And he wrote so much stuff that educationally, like we still have not caught up with today. Like his, his, uh, revolutions for education are like still ongoing and trickling through and spreading out. Um, so I highly recommend looking into all of that stuff in general of like, he had 10 declines of modern life, which still feels super true today. Uh, the way he, um, graded students was, uh, like very holistically, like the criteria, one aspect of the criteria was academics and everything else was, uh, it was basically character building. Like Mm -hmm. and there's so many stories of him, uh, living that out, out there. Um, from, yeah. And so then World War II happened and sailors were dying out at, so all of the able body aged men in Britain went to war or for the war effort. And so they were left with young kids and old sailors running the merchant ships. And as the U-boats kept hitting, they kept finding that the old sailors would live and the young ones would die at way higher numbers. And it didn't make sense to people because they thought the young, able-bodied people would make it. Yeah. But they found that the old sailors knew how to work together and work as a crew and a team to make it out. And the young ones like struggled for their own survival and failed because of that. So he was tasked with creating 
a short course training program designed off his school basically to train merchant sailors for the war time period and so that was outward bound was created as the short course uh for what he was trying to do in schools in general wow um and from there it spread um yeah, the first was in Colorado. The second was in Minnesota in the United States. Or the first American one was in Colorado. Uh, and then the second American one was in Minnesota. And yeah, they continue to pop up around the world. And Okay. Yeah. Is Kurt Hahn someone that you learned about in school before you went to Outward Bound? Or Yeah. Okay. So, wow. I had no idea that Outward Bound was like such a pinnacle of outdoor education. Was I, I hadn't heard of Kurt Hahn before today. So that that's pretty amazing that so much history of like philosophy being carried out into teaching um, started in that program. Yeah. And then uh, Knowles is the other big one around today. And Knowles mm-hmm. started because Paul Petzl, Outward Bound was mainly staffed by, as it still is, by educators. Yeah. Um, and like the reason I went into Outward Bound was to become a good educator because all the, a lot of the best educators I saw in my academic career had all spent long times at Outward Bound. And it was like, oh, that's how you become a good educator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Paul Petzl was at Outward Bound and found that they were really good educators, but they were terrible at the technical skills and that Outward Bound staff weren't trained well enough to do the technical stuff and started, Knowles National yeah. Outdoor Leadership School to train outward bound instructors in the technical skills to do their job. So Knowles was started to train outward bound instructors to be outward bound instructors. Okay. And that's like the other big one um, in the outdoor education field today too. And so like it's all just splintered off of more or less Kurt Hahn and outward bound. Wow. Which is why a lot of it is owed to him and the philosophy and such. Where does that fit into someone's life? Like I think going in the, going out into the wilderness is kind of seen as a rite of passage at least here in the united states um and yeah in your experience where does that age-wise fit into someone's life i I don't know that there is an age where it fits in i think uh teenagers are the most common because they're the easiest to pluck out of their lives and send out there yeah Um, whereas adults have uh usually more commitments and more responsibilities so it's harder but i think that it's for everyone at all ages yeah and I think the struggle is just like accessibility. Like it's right. like you have to be able to take a lot of time off. Yeah. Often these programs cost a lot of money. Um, and so like, I think that's like the biggest struggle in the field in general is like, how do we shift that so that we can get there? And I think like, I think we can get there. I think there's like places like Outback where, they're building their packs out of tarps and sticks, right? So, like, mm-hmm. if we start applying those models uh, that are only being used in these couple places of, like, minimal equipment, minimal needs along that, like, material sense, like, and we start applying that uh, to other places, like, maybe we can start dropping the price and making it more accessible to yeah. a wider audience. That's just another factor of accessibility, too, is we've been... It's not only like socioeconomic status, but like the ability to leave your home or even like that drive to leave your home. I just finished reading Into the Wild and I feel like a lot of the people that do end up going into the outdoors have sort of been selected. It's this population that's like been selected, air quotes, evolutionarily. There's a way better way to say that, but it's not coming to me right now. It seems like the people who end up making out there are 
are the outliers that are willing to like put down responsibility and to go away from their family and to sacrifice a lot in terms of like financial stability or like life stability and schedule and i mean yeah that's just a whole other factor of accessibility but that brings you into the question of how accessible do we want to make the outdoors and what does that look like when when we have such a great portion of our population not only wanting to go outside but like being expected to as an educational requirement i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing but it does strike me as possibly being a conflict when in the past we have only preserved land from the mindset that only a select population are going to be able to experience these things and so i i guess that yeah do we want everyone out in the woods right do we want everyone out in the woods and if we do have we saved enough land for everyone to be out in the woods because i don't think that's been our top priority for a long time yeah i think that's actually what national parks serve as for most people is like the accessible place where Mm -hmm. uh everyone is Mm -hmm. and so like uh I don't know. We're definitely supposedly loving our parks to death, but I'd way rather condense it to those areas. Uh, and like, yeah, the idea of going out in the BLM and not being able to be alone, yeah, uh, sucks. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's weird. Like, you want like naturally, I feel like the outdoors people want to hoard it and keep it quiet and right. not want more people out there. And at the same time, we like this is awesome. More people need it in their lives. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah, and with the educational component, I, I I feel like most people should experience that or at least be able to. Um, and I think that's where it's important to, like, that experiential ed and outdoor ed can happen anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't have to happen. Like, there are a lot of urban outward bounds uh, that are doing really good work Yeah, uh, as well. And we don't need to need, we don't need to move people super far geographically. I think that there's far more value in building someone's sense of place where they already are. Yeah. So like trying to do that work where their home is or as close to their home as possible so that they're continuing that connection with their local area and their land and just strengthening and deepening that. Yeah. I think that's more valuable in my mind than flying someone across the country to put them in this remote wilderness area where they're going to have like a far more wild experience, but far less local. Yeah. And that brings to mind, kind of a distinction that I think we need to make culturally about how we think about the wilderness and the outdoors is I think a lot of people think that the appeal to wilderness or being in the outdoors is some sort of transcendence or like going out there to experience some pivotal moment where their life is changed or some like awe inspiring view that just like shakes their foundations whatever but that's really not the reality of it and it it can be just as mundane as everyday life. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in going to the park and watching squirrels chase each other. Yeah. Yeah, or having a bird feeder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. The world is everywhere. You don't have to go out to find it. Okay, so what was the length of the expeditions or a example expedition that you led? I did two five-day courses, so like a vet's course and a adult's course. Uh, one was canoeing, one was sea kayaking. 
I did a 28-day intercept course, which is youth at risk. So it's like one step, uh, one step less than elements. So yeah. like I've seen students get kicked out of there and go to elements. Okay. Or not kicked out, but quit there and yeah. go to elements. So they're like strongly coerced. Yeah. But they choose to go. Yeah. Um, you should. You should briefly tell us what elements is. Oh yeah. Uh, so the other place I work when I'm working is Elements Wilderness Program. It's out in Utah, and it's a wilderness therapy program. And yeah, wilderness therapy usually, usually the students are not choosing to be there. Right. Um, they're like seriously not choosing to be there. Like some might try and get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And for those listening, a good summary of wilderness therapy can be found on episode two with Bree. You can also check out a podcast um, called Demystifying Wilderness Therapy. I don't know if you've heard of that one, but um, Lynn actually from Elements is interviewed on that. So you can kind of get a deeper idea of what exactly is going on. And if you're into reading, uh, Shouting at the Sky is oh, the right. best way to have an idea of what's out there. In okay. General. It's a really good book. Okay. Okay. So the 28-day program you led was with at-risk youth and that's the population that can end up at elements yeah well any any young adult could end up at elements right life goes sour for them yeah and they have the means to get there but uh Mm -hmm. yeah that's the population that's more in line with it um and then i also did half of a intermester course which is a 45 day intercept course but that's a sometimes young adults and sometimes teenagers okay Cool. So you're out there in the Boundary Waters canoeing? Yep. Boundary Waters or uh, the North Shore of Lake Superior sea kayaking or backpacking yeah. on the SHT. My preferred is sea kayaking. Sea kayaking is my, uh, I would say my trade, but I don't do it very often. So, Okay. Yeah. And you get your 10,000 hours in? Yeah, I definitely don't have 10,000 hours. I probably have 10,000 hours paddling in okay. general, mm-hmm. uh, but probably not in a sea kayak. Okay. That sounds wonderful, being out there in canoe. What's the Boundary Waters like? Uh, it's the most visited wilderness area in America, which is the worst statistic for a wilderness area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one with the most people in it. <laughs> um, but the reason for that is that it's super accessible as far as wilderness is go, because canoeing is something that anyone pretty much can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also can tow you out there and there's portage wheels so like it is something that can be uh, accessible to a wider population in general you don't need to carry anything except for a portage and like honestly you could even just canoe on a lake and never go portage anywhere either and fishing is really popular up there because um, there's walleye everywhere and it's just lots of lakes in general Mm-hmm. Um, and the best thing about canoeing is like, you can't, like I sent out three friends once who had never, I think one of them maybe had r- really canoed before, but they definitely never been on a canoe expedition. And like, as we watched them zigzag back and forth, uh, like after dropping them off, it was like, well, they're either not going to get far and they won't have far to come back or they'll figure it out and they'll come back a lot faster than they got out. So yeah. like within that regard, it's super easy to go out there without really knowing what you're doing and to manage an expedition and so that's one i think that's why it's the most visited one in general okay so there's no issue with the water being um too hard to handle i mean uh 
generally people's fear keeps them safe. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And were you ever out in the in the winter in the Boundary Waters? That's my favorite time to be in Minnesota in general because no one else goes there. Okay. Because uh, it's really cold. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do a lot of dog sledding in the winter up yeah. there. It's like the main dog sled place in America that's not Alaska. Okay. So that's really cool. There's lots of dog sledding up there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lots of friends who work dog sledding. Our bound does dog sledding up there Okay. in the winter as well. Have you ever done that? I did it once for class. I'm allergic to animals. so mm. I uh, Even outside? uh well dogs sled dogs are uh very furry very furry yeah and uh you like you have to interact with them to work with sled dogs yeah and so that makes sense that becomes more of the issue they're also like i don't know it's just not my my thing yeah not super into dogs to begin with and then the sleds that we used were like they were or the dogs we used were more like freight dogs than speed dogs so they can carry a lot of weight for a really long time, but they go really slow. Okay. And so I spent most of the time like running next to the sled, trying to encourage the dogs to go faster. That's funny. Uh, and my friends who guide out, it was at Wintergreen uh, where we had done our class. And my friend who guide there uh, ski in front of the sleds. So oh, they're okay. like skiing, breaking the trail. Oh, wow. Do you have to have somebody on the sled to guide the dogs? Or can they pretty much? The dogs just follow the skiers and the tourists are on the sleds. That sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's really cool. At least that's my understanding of it is the dogs just follow the skiers. But I know they're just skiing in front, so I would assume that that's how it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would enjoy that, I think. Cross-country yeah. skiing along with some dogs. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, it would be a lot of work. I heard, I've heard i heard of one sport, either in Minnesota or Wisconsin, maybe Michigan, one of the Great Lakes states. I think it was Wisconsin. I had a college professor who told us about um, taking like a ski boat out onto the lakes with a sail in the winter and then like windsurfing on a ski boat. Have you heard of this? I don't know what a ski boat is. I I don't think it's the right word for it, but it's bit, he was talking about like sailing a vessel on skis on an iced over lake. I, uh, I've never seen it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, okay. that people would try that like a uh, kite kite uh boarding like surfing is, yeah uh can be popular they do some weird lake stuff up there like watercross is a sport in northern minnesota what is watercross? where you race snowmobiles on open lakes on open water oh wow yeah and you can you can oh. ride a snowmobile across an open lake uh just by going really fast or yep you don't want to come to a stop because then you sink yeah but that would suck. Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, yeah, that is a sport up there. Yeah, that makes sense. The professor who was telling me about this was talking about jumping over a crack in the ice on accident, and they were going like 60 miles an hour on this thing. That sounds nuts. You have reached the end of an interview with Tim Minuta, part one. Please go back. And select Tim Minutza Part 2 to continue listening. Thank you for your continued patronage.